Welcome to Challenging Climate, a podcast where we discuss the science, technology, and politics of climate change. I'm Pete Irvin, a climate scientist. And I'm Jesse Reynolds, an environmental policy expert. Each episode, we bring on a guest with a unique perspective and deep expertise on climate change, and we put challenging questions to them. In this episode, we spoke with Chris Stark, the CEO of the UK's Committee on Climate Change, the independent body established by the UK government to advise it on its legally binding climate targets. What particularly attracted me to this episode is that a couple of years ago, I was playing around with emissions data. And when you control for population growth and the growth of the economy, it turns out that the United Kingdom is arguably the world's leader in reducing greenhouse gas emissions over the last 25 years or so. And the Climate Change Act of 2008 was a big part of this. We spoke a bit about this with Sir David King in Episode 9. And that act created the Committee on Climate Change which is led by our guest today, Chris Stark. And during this conversation, two things struck me in particular. One was that Chris comes to the issue as a civil servant, something of a technocrat, if you will. And so his perspective is different, I think, than most of the guests which who, who we have on this podcast, which have tended to be academics, authors, and journalists. And the second item that struck me is the way in which he was able to draw the causal relation from the existence of this committee, what it said, to how policy has actually been implemented in the UK and in turn having a measurable effect on policy. Yeah, I really enjoyed recording this conversation with Chris. It was great hearing about the committee's work, which I think has and does provide a great model for other nations of how you can get work done on climate change and not have it be a politically divisive issue. And Pete did this conversation on his own. I was occupied elsewhere. So many thanks, Pete, for taking that on. And this podcast, like our other episodes, is produced by Jillian Chong. Please help us cover her and our other costs by supporting us at patreon.com slash challengingclimate. That is patreon.com slash challengingclimate. And now for a conversation with Chris Stark. Today, we're joined by Chris Stark, the CEO of the UK's Committee on Climate Change. Welcome to the Challenging Climate Podcast. Hi, Pete. Thanks so much for having me. So, yeah, we'd like to start off by asking our guests about their background. How did you get to where you are today? Well, it's funny. I'm talking to you today in London, where our office is, but I live in Glasgow, and that's probably where this story begins for me. So I grew up in Glasgow, and I've been around and recently returned to the city a few years ago to have a family. but. That's where I grew up. And uh, I went, as all Glaswegians do, the kind of ambition of every Glaswegian is to remain in the city for as long as possible. So I went to Glasgow University, did a law and finance degree, I remember, and was absolutely sure at the end of that 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 was not what I wanted to do with my life. So I moved to London because I wanted to pursue a career in music. That was going to be the thing I was going to do. And I better have a job, I thought. So I joined the civil service and I had a fantastic time as a civil servant doing various jobs, initially as an analyst. And then as a policy professional, I suppose you could call me, in the Treasury most of the time I was down in, in London. 
And then I found myself back in Scotland in Edinburgh this time, later on in my career. And because I'd worked on the economy, the energy stuff sort of fitted quite nicely, really. The energy, energy sector is a big economic question in, in Scotland. And when I worked for the Scottish government, I led the energy team there. And the climate stuff came after that. So I'm a sort of civil servant, really, by trade. But now very definitely rooted in the climate world. This is this is going to be where I work for the rest of my career, I think. So I was delighted to do this job after the Scottish government job. And I've been doing it now for five years, officially out of government, although we have very close links to government. I had to resign as a civil servant to do this job. And the main reason for that is that I can, as a resigned civil servant, I can speak publicly about the failings of government. And that's something, sadly, we have to do quite often in the job I have now. Yeah. So for a bit of background on the UK's community on climate change, we've got to start with the Climate Change Act of 2008. What is it and what does it do? Yeah, and it's an interesting story, I think. So back in 2007, the UK, you might remember, had a, a Labour administration in Westminster and they were mulling over what to do about this issue of climate change. And in opposition was this chap, David Cameron, who was also looking for a way, I think, to demonstrate that the Tories had changed. So you had this kind of quite interesting moment, very unusual moment, actually, I don't think you would have now if we ran the process again of unity between the main parties that something should be done about this issue of climate change. Lib Dems have always been very pro-climate action. So you had near unanimity in in the Commons that there should be a, a piece of legislation on climate. And because of that, it was ended up being a very powerful piece of legislation, probably still one of the most powerful pieces of climate legislation anywhere in the world. Really interesting to go back to that period because it was the time a novelty to have domestic legislation on what was then thought to be a global issue, mainly. So you create this piece of legislation, the Climate Change Act, the UK doing, as it occasionally does, something genuinely impactful in an international sphere by creating that legislation. And the key bit of it, I suppose, was just that, that it was it was necessary to tackle this global issue for the UK to have domestic legislation. And that you know, was an innovation. Other countries since have copied it. And the legislation itself is very powerful. It basically sets up the idea that government has a long-term responsibility to act on climate change. That's manifested essentially in two things. One is a, a target for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And then the other side of the act is an, a requirement in the government to put in place policies to adapt to climate change. And crucially, and this is the really kind of secret bit and clever bit about it, was recognise that governments are not very good at sticking to long-term targets. So you needed something that was shorter term, medium term, and most notably on the on the emissions side, that's the carbon budgets that we have in this, the five yearly carbon targets that have to be met legally under the Climate Change Act, responsibility of government to put policies in place to meet them. And the real secret sauce of it was it went still further to say, actually, even that's not enough. We need to have some sort of independent body to assess progress, to give advice on the level of those targets, to give advice to Parliament in its job of scrutinising the government. And that's us. That's the Climate Change Committee. And uh, we've been doing that now for 15 years pretty successfully. We've never had advice refused yet on the level of those carbon targets, which is probably the best barometer of our success, I think. And it's led us progressively over the 15 years to kind of ratchet up the ambition that the UK has uh, for tackling climate change pretty successfully, most notably a few years back with the net zero target. And then the last innovation that I'll just make reference to here is that what's happened since the UK Act is that we've seen sister acts in Scotland, Wales, and then very recently Northern Ireland sort of modelled on the same idea, really, 
we play a similar role in each of those countries' territories. And um, that is also an innovation. So this idea that you, you know, these kind of, I'm going to call regional plans, also guided by legislation, is is another innovation that the UK has pioneered. Again, that's just about sticking together at the moment as, a, as an overall institutional framework that's keeping things on the road. So I guess, what does it mean for the UK government, which sets the UK's laws, to write a law that legally binds it to do something? What happens to the government if it fails to do it? Yeah, it's a totally spot on question, really. And I suppose in the end, the only legal obligation is one that continues to be enforced by Parliament. So and what we've seen progressively over time since 2008 is that Parliament is quite willing to flex its muscles and make sure that the government continues to apply the the Act and and its implications. What's interesting is we've seen in the last 12 months in the UK a new dimension to the power of the Act, which is we've had for the first time ever a successful challenge in the courts of the government's strategy for climate change, the net zero strategy that they brought out a year and a half ago or so. And quite interesting, it was a challenge from a number of NGOs, a judicial review as it's known, of the net zero strategy. Quite a narrow challenge, I think it's worth saying. It was was narrow grounds on which they challenged the government were essentially that the government wasn't being transparent enough about the impacts of the policies in that strategy. And at the time, I don't mind saying I was one of the people who said, I think this is unlikely to be a successful challenge. But I was wrong about that. It's interesting that it was a successful challenge and the judge in the High Court essentially sent the government back to do a new strategy one that was more transparent and would allow proper scrutiny. And I think in the end, that's been a very successful process because it's established two things. One is that the government can't get away with vague strategies. But I think more importantly, it's established a more principled position that you can bring the government to court successfully under the Climate Change Act. So we now know it it genuinely is a piece of powerful legislation, which could at any point in the future, of course, be overturned and removed by a future government. But then I think you go back to the politics. I just don't see, in the current circumstances at least, that there is a, a majority in both par- both houses of parliament to do something like that. So I think in the end, this is a very powerful piece of legislation which has been tested at various times by political circumstances and now in the courts and has been found to be pretty solid, actually. It's because I think it's so well drafted and considered at the at the outset of the process. So what is the Committee on Climate Change and how does it go about holding the government to account on on this? Well, if you look at what it says in the Climate Change Act, we are a technical body that is here to do the analysis, provide advice to government, and then once a year to give advice to Parliament on how well they're doing, how well the government is doing under its obligations in the Climate Change Act. And we do those things. So my team is between 40 and 50 people. Most of them are analysts. We bring together the analysis looks at how the UK can reduce its emissions and adapt to climate change. We tend to do so by looking at various sectors of the economy and build a kind of pretty detailed understanding of what can be done in each of those sectors to reduce emissions and adapt and respond to the climate risks. And then we use that periodically every five years or so to do really important strategic pieces of advice that are required under the Climate Change Act. Every five years, we give advice to the government on the next carbon budget. We're at the moment looking at a period of carbon budget six, which takes you out to the end of the 2030s for the legal targets. But this year, we'll start gearing up for carbon budget seven, which takes us into the early 2040s. So what we need to do to 
plan ahead for that is essentially to build quite a sophisticated and integrated view of how you decarbonize the whole economy, which starts, of course, from things like the energy system and the way that we use land in this country and other things like that. But we build really bottom up a sense of what can be done. And then we ask ourselves lots of questions about how those things could be implemented by policy, what you might expect from key technology changes, what could you expect from behavior changes, how might commerce play into this, you know, all sorts of really important questions that help us to build these scenarios and pathways for the future, which we then use as our advice to government. Government is free to ignore that advice, although they so far haven't done so. And then we will use that as the basis for scrutinising progress when we do our job for Parliament. Now, that's quite a complex thing that I've explained there, but we've been doing it for 15 years. And what you end up with after 15 years is a really deep stock of knowledge about what is possible, which changes over time progressively. And that takes me, I suppose, to the thing that you will not see in the Climate Change Act, which is the role that we now inhabit, I think, which is a bit broader than what you see in black and white in the legislation. Where we are, in a sense, holding open a space for change on these things. We have a, a set of things that must be done in the UK to hit these targets. Um, in particular, the net zero target that we now have has become a really kind of important mission for the whole country. If you want that to happen, it's partly about government policy, of course, but it's mainly about what the private sector does, but what individuals and businesses and indeed the third sector do in that space. What we are doing is essentially putting some evidence around the changes that need to take place not saying specifically that one thing or another needs to happen, but laying out the range of options and doing so in an evidence-based way, which creates a better space then for policy to fill, for government action to come in, and indeed for the private sector action to come in too. So what's interesting is that what that means for us is that we need to say the difficult things before they are then implemented. If we haven't said them, implementing them becomes very difficult politically. And, that, and you find that in other parts of the world where you don't have an institution like the CCC doing that job. So it's been a really, I think, successful experiment for the UK to have this institutional framework in place because we've made more progress on these issues than other parts of the world. We would always think, you know, we our analysis always says you could do more, but it's definitely the case that the UK has had more success than other parts of the world. So you described the work there of the sort of the technical team, but am I right that there's these two subcommittees that are sort of stocked with senior folks? What's their role in, in the working of the organisation? That's right. So we have under the Act two committees which are appointed by public appointment. And these are the experts that we work to. So my team is the, the technical experts that provide the analysis. And they are we are guided and directed by that team of experts on each committee. And those experts typically serve for a term of a few years and then are moved on. So we have a sort of turned over over the course of the 15 years, we've had a complete turnover now of, all the, of the figures around the table. The probably most prominent of those people is our chair. So our chairman is, is a member of the House of Lords, John Selwyn Gummer, who used to be the Environment Secretary, or Lord, Lord Deben, as he's more commonly known now. And he is an ex-politician and has helped us in many ways to navigate that difficult political environment that we've just talked about. But that's really interesting. The first chair of the CCC was an economist who didn't really come from the climate sphere. That was Adair Turner, Lord Turner. And at some point, we'll have another chair and quite possibly they will not come from the political sphere. So it's, it, there's many ways to do this job. What's important is that around that chair, we have lots of experts. So typically scientists, engineers, we have real experts in their field helping us to shape the analysis and to give the advice that we are required to under the Climate Change Act. 
And I guess that with an organization like this, like I know the IPCC does, it, it attracts a lot of sort of goodwill from the academic community. What are the connections between your committee, the people who are on your staff and on these committees, and the wider academic and, and policy world? Yeah, lots of connections. So, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that we, we do indeed take people from academia and from these academic institutions either into the committee to play a role as an expert or very regularly onto my team, as which we know as the secretariat. So that is a very common thing. There are people working for me now who come straight out of academia. But probably the most useful thing that we do, I think, is translate some of that research on climate into policy. So we are not in government, but we stand right at the border of government. And a lot of the things that we are doing are taking the latest science or the latest research on a particular topic, turning that into something that is policy relevant and making sure that the policy makers who are in government understand the implications of it now. We're not the only ones doing that, but we have a specific role under the Climate Change Act to do it, which I think is helpful in the sense that if we're doing it as properly providing that route to market, I suppose, for some of the things that are coming out of the research community, particularly. Now, we do that in many different ways, but probably the easiest way to describe what we do is that we try and do it around that five-year cycle. So when we give our advice every five years on the next carbon budget or on the next climate change risk assessment, we build a programme around that of engagement with the academic community and the research community to make sure that they know it's know what's coming, know what our priorities are, have a way to feed in the latest research so that we are using it. There's probably lots of ways in which in the future we'll need to develop that, but it's been pretty successful. I think, again, again, I look at other parts of the world where they don't have that kind of institutional framework, and it's just harder to find you know, the route to, to, put to full policymaking from, from direct research. Uh, and I think we do a pretty good job of that in the UK. You mentioned the UK is doing well compared to many other nations. How rapidly have the emissions fallen in the UK? Yeah, I mean, we look at several ways of measuring that. So the way that the Climate Change Act requires us to measure it is by looking at what we call production emissions or territorial emissions. That's the emissions that are produced here. And on that basis, we are very broadly halfway down the chart. So we measure things from where they were in 1990. The goal is to get to 100% reduction, and we're just short of 50% reduction now on that basis in production emission terms. And increasingly, and quite rightly, the focus is on not just what is being burned, mainly, in the UK. We have a broader focus to look at the impact that we're having in the UK, including beyond our border. So we have broader measures of emissions, which tend to lag slightly, sadly, the, um, the stats for production emissions. But we also look at carbon footprint more generally. And on that basis, we're also reducing our emissions as the rest of the world continues to decarbonize, at least in places that we're buying products and services from. So I think there is a story here that is positive, but I don't want to give you the sense, Pete, about the job done, because you know most of the effort that's been expended on this challenge happened many, many years ago, and particularly in the power sector. And that's probably been the greatest UK success stories in moving off coal into other forms of electricity generation. But in most areas... The assessment that we make in the CCC, which is every year increasingly sophisticated about the state of progress, is that we're just not doing enough. So, you know, we are certainly better than some of our comparator countries, but none of them are doing enough. And that includes the UK. So we're quite freely handing out criticism now in areas like transport. Big challenge here in the UK, how you decarbonize buildings. That's a particularly you know UK focused challenge that we're not doing nearly enough on. And big areas that are largely untouched by policy, like agriculture and land use, where if we don't get that right, we actually run out of time to make the necessary changes to hit these targets. So there's a hell of a lot still to do. 
So if I remember right, the original Climate Change Act was an 80% reduction by 2050. And then I think with the, with the arrival of the Paris Agreement and the 1.5 Celsius target, there was a shift to net zero. How did you calculate what the UK's contribution ought to be on that? Because, you know, if globally, I can't remember the numbers, but if globally we need to hit net zero by around 2050, how do you account for the fact that the UK is much richer and much more polluting than many nations and has a long historical record of a lot of coal use? How did you adjust that and come up with the figure of the, I can't remember the specific date, of when the UK should do it to be 1.5 Celsius compatible? So there's this, a longer history here, actually. So when the Climate Change Act passed, we didn't have an 80% target, actually. We had a 60% target for carbon dioxide and only so quite a weak target now, as you and I talk. And the first act of the then independent Climate Change Committee was to advise that it should be raised to 80% by 2050 for all greenhouse gases target. And at the time, that was surprising. It's been lost in the midst of time how surprising it was. But as a brand new institution, as a brand new piece of legislation, much celebrated piece of legislation, I think the politicians probably felt they, they had to accept that advice, even if it was a surprise. So quite an interesting thing, because that 80% target then lasted all the way through until 2018, 19. You might remember that the IPCC did their one and a half degrees report which had, from my perspective, a fantastic impact on the community of people who are interested in climate, which grew very substantially. With it, there was a whole kind of civil movement to act on it that certainly politics was hearing. We're a technical body and we advise on the legal target as it is, but periodically we are asked to look at that legal target. And in light of the IPCC report, the government requested of us a review of the 2050 target. And at that point, we weren't talking about a net zero target, although, of course, science had been talking about net zero. That was not the request. It wasn't, you know, should we have a net zero target? It was what target is appropriate given this science and given our obligations under the pretty new Paris Agreement at that point. So we undertook a very big piece of work at that point, which we had to do in, in, in about a year. So not very long for us to do what was in effect a full reappraisal of the UK's approach. And that point concluded that it was right to change the 2050 target. And we did so mainly on the basis that the Paris Agreement says that we should have maximum possible ambition. And we felt there were more opportunities to go faster on this transition. One of the key things that we looked at, though, Pete, in that work was this thing of raised it in your question, you asked me of the kind of equity consideration. And we looked at a range of ways in which you could measure the appropriate UK contribution to the global effort, some of which take you to a goal which is much earlier than 2050, but many of which do not. And I think probably the main thing we looked at was that the global pathways for an all greenhouse gas emission pathways to the one and a half degree or two degree scenario, somewhere in that range is the Paris Agreement expressed in model pathways, take you to kind of net zero by about 2070, actually, globally. So this idea then was that the UK should go ahead of that, that actually the science says you need net zero CO2 and that by setting a target for net zero for all greenhouse gases, we were actually slightly ahead of where the science said you needed to be. And that as a developed economy, we should set an earlier target for that goal than was, than was required globally. 
And at that point, it was very novel to say that. We were the only developed economy that had that in place. France followed very swiftly afterwards. And one of the arguments we made to the government at that stage was that by setting that kind of target, the UK would allow other countries the space to do the same thing. And that's duly what's happened. So as we see, as we talk today, and not laying claim wholly to this, but the UK very much started this movement towards net zero as a global goal. Now you have something like 90% of the global economy under some kind of net zero target. Most of those targets, though, are not nearly as legally binding as the UK's targets. So we continue to look at that. There may be a point in the future when we reappraise the long-term goal again. But you know, unless we see more progress in the short term, the window to actually have earlier targets gets shorter and shorter. You've got to, you've got to get, you've got to assume very, very, very steep trajectories for emissions. And part of our job is to assess practicality of the transition as much as it is the science. So we try to balance all of that. And I continue to believe that 2050 for all greenhouse gases is the right goal for the UK. So net zero introduced another issue into climate change or another opportunity into climate change, which is the challenge of eliminating every emission is getting on towards impossible, like transatlantic flights that don't use kerosene is, is difficult, very difficult. And so there's this, we're imagining there's going to be some degree of residual emissions from aviation, from agriculture, and that they'll be offset by carbon dioxide removal techniques to suck CO2 out of the air. What role does carbon dioxide removal play in meeting that net zero target of the UK in your projections? So it plays a really important role. We, Following the net zero report, which was 2019, we then moved on to that being legislated. The government accepted the advice eventually and made it law. And then we moved on to assessing the pathways to it. And that is a fantastic process for us. We look at the, all the many ways in which you can decarbonize the economy. This time around, we had five separate pathways to net zero all of which were designed to illustrate a kind of different path because we didn't want to have one pathway. When you only have one pathway, it starts to look unlikely. So if you've got options, that makes it more likely for that policy will fill the gap, that you know the private sector will come in behind it, those sorts of things. But it's interesting, all of those pathways have some greenhouse gas removal technologies in there. All of them have carbon capture and storage in there. And, you know, that is hugely controversial. It's a technology that although in theory we can do and in technical terms we've done at small scale, we haven't got the kind of large scale GGRs happening that, you know, might give us confidence that we could use it as an extensive part of this transition. But one thing we try to do before I answer the question is to have a sixth scenario without it. And, you know, we could technically do it I think we got to in the high 90s in terms of emissions reductions. But the kind of changes you'd need elsewhere in the economy to allow that to happen were very, very dependent on behaviour shifts, the likes of which we've not seen anywhere else. So very big shifts in consumption of things like meat, very, very much reduced transport by fossil fuel transport modes, all sorts of very big societal shifts. In the past, we haven't really got any evidence would be successful. So I think that points to the use of this thing as, you know, not just something that the modelling needs, but actually is something that is genuinely useful. And the other thing that came out of that scenario, that which we couldn't really call a full scenario, was that we had more emissions over the transition, which is exactly the opposite of what the Paris Agreement talks about. You have you know, a requirement to reduce emissions in the short term. It's the area under the curve that really matters when climate change is concerned. So this, this issue of CCS or GGRs, controversial as it is, we do see them as a necessary part of the transition because they give you options. 
if you have the facility to do it, then you can do other things with it. And uh, really useful to have that in the mix as you look forward. But really, really important concluding thought on this. Most recent work, I've been in this job for five years. Over that five years, what, what has come out most from our analysis and other analysis that has been done in other places is that the major challenge here is to get almost every sector to actual zero emissions and to do so as quickly as possible, leaving really only a rump of, of areas where we know it is either very challenging or impossible. And that's what the GGRs are for. In the end, is you should be minimising the remaining residual emissions so that GGRs are only used really to offset those things. I think more or less that is the way that people are thinking about this now. I do worry slightly about this kind of slightly North American outlook. We can bring direct air capture down to such a cheap price that you won't need to do this other stuff over here because that smacks to me of what we used to have before the net zero target when everyone thought they were in the 20 and we had an 80% target and lots of people in, in society felt that they had a good shout of being in that remaining 20 that's not the way to look at this. We should be reducing emissions in every every area. And we know that is possible, with the possible exception of, of, of flying and farming, right? The two big Fs. You know, there are other areas too, but they're the biggies. And even in, in those areas, flying, there is some prospect, I think, by the end of this century, at least, that we wouldn't need fossil fuels in that sector. So, you know, I think every year we look at it, we find more and more ways to do real emissions reduction and not to use GGRs. Yeah, so I'm right. The UKCCC comes up with these, like a dashboard of indicators of progress across different sectors, you know, and has green and red lights, depending on how the government is progressing. Looking across that dashboard, what are the sectors with the biggest red flashing lights? Where is there a danger of things going off the rails in the coming years? So just a brief diversion on the way that we manage this and, and monitor progress. So 15 years ago, we used to look at the emissions that were in each sector, the sort of stack of emissions in that sector, and we would assess progress essentially on how, how well or otherwise they were coming down. We've moved on now to, I think, a more elegant description of progress that we need to see, mainly using the modelling that we've been talking about in this call. So we've got this really integrated view now of the things that need to be done across the economy. And it's taking us to a world where actually emissions becomes less and less important in that discussion because it's the underlying factors that drive the emissions down that really determine progress. So if you look at you know a sector like transport, for example, there's a certain amount of this which is about reducing our demand for travel in the first place with fossil fuel vehicles, improving the energy intensity of or fossil fuel intensity of those vehicles on the road. And then there's another whole bit of it around traveling by foot and, and by cycle. And then a final bit, the big emissions chunk come from, which is actually replacing the vehicles on roads, especially with electric vehicles or, or other decarbonized forms of transport. So we've got this all laid out for us. And in the end, it becomes more interesting to look at these things, these underlying factors, and we can put you know, metrics around that. We, we now have a good sense of, for example, on the electric vehicle transition, how the adoption of electric vehicles would grow over time to be in line with the, the sectoral pathways that we and others have defined for the UK. And we now assess progress on that. So we've got a host of indicators across the economy, which we use now to assess progress. What we trend, tend to try and look for are indicators that we can collect regularly, frequently, where there's good data. And when you look at those things, you get a much better sense, I think, of real progress in the economy. So I'll start with the positives. The two areas where there probably is the best progress are the continuing story of the deployment of renewables in this country, because we have a very good policy environment now, which has come out of the Climate Change Act and the institutional framework that we have in the UK of awarding contracts at increasing scale to commercial developers for renewables and giving them essentially a certain return, which the consumer will pay for. 
which at the moment is a return that is beneath the wholesale price of energy and therefore means that actually it's cheaper to have renewables on the system generating electricity than it would be if you were just using fossil fuels. So it's a very you know good thing that we have going there. And that indicator framework I talked about says that we are doing okay on that. The other area we're doing okay on is the electric vehicles thing I talked about. So actually, if you look at even the small number of sales of electric cars and vans that we see in this country, particularly in the cars, we're actually ahead of the curves that we, we were expecting to see for the adoption of electric vehicles already. And, you know, drawing all the things that we, we learned during that COVID period, actually those changes in even small numbers tell you a lot about the future. So we're confident, at least, that that is heading in the right direction. Outside of those two things, we're either mediocre or quite substantially behind where we need to be. And the kind of areas that I would pull out as being the big priorities are the question of how we decarbonize heat to buildings and make those buildings more energy efficient. That is an infrastructure challenge, but it's one that's kind of atomized across the whole economy. And we just don't have policies in place to drive the majority of people living in homes are our owner occupiers in this country. We don't have the kind of policies that would give them incentives to make those homes better energy efficient, prepare them for the transition that's coming up ahead. So that's a big factor and something I worry a lot about. Um, another area where we need to do much, much more is in the question of what we do in the natural world. So land use, agriculture, big source of emissions. All sorts of other challenges there too. There's a set of environmental services that we need from the land and there is a food system that we need to support in the way that we use land in this country too. So we've got to squeeze a lot into this constrained resource of, of land and we're just not seeing any kind of focus there from the government in terms of a strategy there. And there are other areas too where there is at least interest. So you could think about how we decarbonize industry, for example. Lots of interest from the government to do that but not the kind of scale interventions that you might see in, in places like the US now, amazingly. We've got you know a real activist government in the US willing to make big steps now to support reshoring of decarbonized industries in the US. That kind of thing is just not present in the UK discussion at the moment. And it really, I could go on because in most of the sectors, I'm afraid we're not seeing the progress that we need to see. But to leave you with a slightly more optimistic take on all of that, there is still room for that to change. So you know we offer that advice in the knowledge that we, at least in the, in the hope that the government will ultimately respond to that. And it is, in most cases, still a policy-driven thing. So can't quite get to the point yet where the government clears out and lets the market take over. So we're looking at regulatory policies. We're looking at giving better incentives to people in the market, individuals and consumers and corporates to make many of these big investments that we need to get to net zero. So if we look to the adaptation side of the equation, if there's another dashboard of green and red flashing lights, is the UK on track to be well adapted to, I mean, I guess it's current climate and climate of the future? No. <laughs> I mean, it's a very simple answer, but I'll let me give you a slightly longer one. So we have these two very important functions in my institution. The one that we've talked about today is mostly about what we do around reducing emissions and the challenge of net zero. But the other part of the Climate Change Act is, is responding to the climate risks that we face in this country. And it's an interesting question because we are less able to determine those things because in the end, we are a victim of whatever the global transition looks like when it comes to climate. So every five years, we make an assessment of those risks too. And that's called the Climate Change Risk Assessment or the CCRA. Last time we did that was a couple of years ago in CCRA 3. And we looked at broadly an enormous program of research. You meant you asked me earlier about the research community. Well, this is one of the ways that we draw them in is that we, we create a framework in which the research community knows that we will give this advice. 
And broadly, we look at an outcome of two degrees centigrade as the global goal and an outcome of four degrees centigrade. So essentially what we're saying is here's an optimistic take on where the world might get to, two degrees. Here's a pessimistic case, four degrees. And there's good climate science behind the pathways that go behind that. So, you know, we can talk about that two and four degree world. I hope we are in a world where we don't hit two, but this is a different challenge. This is looking at the risks that we face at that level. So two is an optimistic framing and four is, I think, pessimistic. I think in the future, hopefully we'll be able to move away from four as a realistic outcome. But it was interesting to look at what you get when you look across the economy at all the various ways in which climate change impacts on this country. When it comes to the optimistic framing of two, in almost every area, almost every sphere, we do not see preparations for even the optimistic outcome. So think about big infrastructure assets, for example. Think about supply chains. Think about the impacts that we face from climate, from flooding or overheating each summer. In those kind of areas, two degrees is not a planning assumption that anyone is using, let alone four. And remember, four is still on the table and you get genuinely catastrophic results at four, even in a country like the UK. So one of the things that we've been highlighting is the need to just up our game here in planning around it. There are a few places where you find good planning. They mainly are in the infrastructure sector. So the water sector does good planning, as you would expect, because it's their business. We also see a bit of that in the energy sector. But in other areas, we just don't see enough, even really important areas like the transport system. So really important for us to raise the kind of red flag on that. And I think the other thing to say on this is that I think the big challenge here now is to move off just assessing the risk into the stuff that we've done very successfully on the other side, on mitigation, on reducing emissions, which is to advise on what you actually do about it. So get into the policy of adaptation, get into the question of what we actually do to respond to these risks in a coherent way. But the key difference here on adaptation is we don't have that kind of quantified outcome, that goal that's spelled out in the Climate Change Act in the way that we do with the net zero target. Net zero is very useful because you can build technical work around it. You can understand what that would mean for each sector of the economy, what it would mean for changes in behavior across society. With adaptation, we're slightly in the dark because we haven't got those kind of measured outcomes that we want to see. So I think stage one of what we need to do next in the CCC is actually to come up with something that expresses better what a well-adapted UK looks like, what it would mean for some of the key systems that we all rely upon, to get a sense of something that is more quantified as an outcome. Once we have that, a you know, kind of residual risk, you could think of it, the kind of residual target risk that we are seeking in these areas, then we start the process of measuring what adaptation actions can do as we look forward into the future, as climate change starts to raise these risks, what could adaptation actions do to bring them back down again to that credible outcome? If we have that more quantitative framework in place, I think we'll have a better place to start advising on policies and we'll have a, that idea of kind of holding open the change that I talked about at the top of this discussion. We'll be able to do that more in adaptation so that the private sector comes in to start providing some of these solutions too, that the individuals in this country understand what their role in some of these things is too. We don't have that right now. So I'm excited actually about what we can do on the adaptation front. I guess just one thought on that is obviously, you know, the emissions timescale that you're talking about are these five-year chunks. You've got to do things now because our emissions count and add up now. Whereas a, a two Celsius world and a four Celsius world, these are some decades away. Are, are there some areas where we really need to have that very long term planning and other ones where we can sort of have more of a wait and see attitude? Yeah, I don't think there are many places where you can just wait and see. And what's interesting is you look forward in the climate projections. Most of the climate change that we will see in this country by 2050 is already locked in. It's really only after 2050 that you start to see the impact of success or otherwise globally on net zero. So in that world, we won't know what scenario we're in for some time. And 
you therefore should be planning for the worst, I think. In terms of risk management, that is what you should do. You need to be resilient to the worst case outcome. There's an interesting question about what you might call long tail risk, kind of low likelihood, high impact outcomes that come with things like tipping points, which rightfully people are worried about. So all of that points to being, you know, taking a kind of caution first approach and actually getting ahead of this. And I think the other aspect of this is that those countries that adapt well to this will be the economies and societies that thrive in the future. So there's a sort of long-term goal here, not to get into too much of the kind of competitiveness stuff, but actually if you want to be successful over a century when we know the world will warm, then actually this stuff needs to have more prominence in in long-term planning. Long-term planning is hard in democracies where you have four and five-year terms. And that's one of the advantages of having a thing like the Climate Change Act, which just keeps people's eye on the longer term And very clearly, whether it's on mitigation and emissions reduction or whether it's on adaptation, the story is consistently act early because you'll get the benefits in the long run if you do so. And, you know, I think more and more as we look at the climate risk questions, that becomes becomes very obvious. I'll give you one further take on that, really, which is that these two things we've talked about, mitigation and adaptation, do not exist in a vacuum, right? Essentially, they've got to be achieved together. So we will have to achieve net zero in a warming climate. And actually, that points to another very interesting aspect of this is plan for something like a different kind of energy system in the future that delivers you net zero. You need to be ready for the fact that we will have more challenges from climate weather related interruptions to that energy system. And if you think it through, as we become more and more reliant on electricity as the kind of basis of the whole energy system, that make, that's a resilience risk as well, because, you know, we need electricity for not just lighting where we where we live and work, but also how we heat it and how we travel around in the country as well. So puts a, an extra focus on it. That long term thinking is what you need to think that through properly, I think. So when we want some of the some of the challenges or costs associated with this, what's it going to cost the UK to meet net zero target? This is the most consistent question that I'm asked. And of course, the correct answer is to say, I don't know. Then we have more and more of a sense of what that what it is that we should be thinking about. So back to the underlying economics of this transition, we know that the costs of unchecked climate change are enormous, you know, very clearly. And that we also know that by acting on it, even if there is a cost, it is worth it in the long run. That used to be 15 years ago when the Climate Change Act in the UK was coming into being. That was the dominant discussion. What's happened since is that we've moved on to, I think, a different framing of this, which is to say that you don't need to worry, actually, about well, you do need to worry, but you don't need to factor in the damage costs of climate change to want to act on it now. Because we're into this interesting world where having decided to act, particularly on, on the energy technologies that drive us towards net zero and decarbonised energy systems, Having decided to act on that, we are now seeing absolutely astonishing reductions in the cost of those technologies, and that has wider implications. So the simple way to frame this is that it is worth making the transition now without you having to worry about climate change at all, because it adds up essentially to something close to zero cost when you look at the kind of macro story for the UK. Let me just work that through with you so you understand it. To get to net zero, we have to do a lot. It is mainly about investing in capital assets in the economy, things that we use daily, every day for our everyday lives. So it's about the electricity generation that we have. It's about the cars and the vehicles on the road. It's about the things that we do with our buildings. It's about the plant and machinery that's used in in industry. It's a capital investment challenge. But increasingly, what we see is that the cost of those capital investments is much lower than it would have been, say, 20 years ago. And here's the really important bit, that the use of those capital assets now increasingly is cheaper than it would be if you were using a similar technology with fossil fuels. 
Mainly that's because there's no commodity being burned. So what we see is this kind of invest to save plan for the country. And when we look at that in the round, what you see is it is a large investment cost. In our assessment, the government's assessment is similar. You're adding about an eighth to the investment that the whole economy would otherwise do if it wasn't trying to hit net zero. So it's quite a lot of capex. But that reveals this huge saving that goes with it, which, of course, grows over time in, in a world where we're not using fossil fuels. So when you wrap those two things together, the investment cost and the, the OPEX saving, you could call it that if you look across the economy, it nets off. And in a world when fossil fuels are really expensive, we're in that world now, then actually the saving grows. So I don't know where we'll be today, but it's certainly very close to zero cost when you net those two things off across the economy. But no one in the economy experiences the net position. So if you can't afford your gas bill this year, many of us cannot, and you're unlikely to be in the market shopping for a heat pump. So there is still a need to drive the transition to make sure that there is good support for those capital investments to, to get us to net zero and a host of other reasons that go with that too. That's the overall story. And then I'll go one stage further, which is to say that if the overall cost absent the climate impacts is around zero, there's another part to this, which we and others need to look at more closely, which is, well, what happens if you invest at scale? What kind of stimulus is there to the economy in making those investments? Because they are big. There are jobs attached to them. These are big transitions in industries that we know today and where people are employed today. So there is a, an, an impact there that we need to measure. And there is a further impact, I think, in the broader discussion of the cost of this, which is that we are not doing this alone. Other parts of the world are also on this transition. Other parts of the world are also seeing the advantage of making this transition in raw economic terms. Most notably, places like the US now have really latched on to the fact that the green stuff is the cheap stuff. So you get this other thing, which is maybe we're in a world where if we don't make this transition, we will also fall behind, fall behind even further, potentially, in this kind of competitive economic discussion that occasionally is discussed here. And that actually these energy technologies particularly are the basis of a more productive economy in those other places. And that it is better, therefore, for the UK to try and get ahead of this for all sorts of reasons, not just for environmental reasons. Now, we haven't made those arguments here in the CCC because it's not really our role to do so. But I think that argument of, you know, not missing out is going to have more and more traction, I think, over time. And most notably in the UK, we've just seen a review by this guy, Chris Skidmore, who's one of the Conservative backbench MPs who was tasked by Liz Truss in her short-lived stint as Prime Minister. She tasked him with looking at net zero on a very kind of conservative outlook on the economy to ask the question, was it compatible with our economic growth aspirations in the UK? He concluded very firmly that actually the big story here was that we must not miss out on this transition on straightforward economics on economic grounds. So I think there's a lot more to say now about this pro-growth story, but I tend to come back to the more general reasons to do this, which is that we'll have cleaner air, we'll have a safer environment for future generations. There's a better thing for us to go down this route for all sorts of reasons and not simply because the economy says it's a good thing to do. I guess so far, and it seems like in the, in the near future, this might be you know economically better overall I wouldn't really have noticed in my life if the UK had emitted twice as much CO2 or half as much CO2. A lot of the changes that have happened are invisible. You know, the electricity is the same, but it's coming from greener sources. But as we get towards near zero, are more and more of the things going to start to be noticeable? I mean, well, I've got a gas boiler, a gas stove, which is great. It's better than the, electric, the old electric ones. When's the transition going to start coming home into the home? And is that going to generate some opposition and challenges? 
So I do think we're at a different stage now of this transition. I mean, I think you're right to frame it in the way that you did, Pete, because most of the progress that has been made on reducing emissions in this country has been made in a way that hasn't required active participation of most of the people in the country. And that's because most of it has been kind of upstream or behind the meter. It's basically most of the progress or a lot of the progress has come from closing coal-fired power stations and replacing them with something else. And your kettle still works. So, you know, in the main, it does, most people in this country don't know that you know, the majority of the electrons that were passed to their home last year were zero carbon. But that can't continue forever. There's still quite a lot of that to come. I think it's important to say that that kind of low friction stuff is still doing a lot of the work in the future. But you're right that the next stage involves, you know, a different set of changes, which you which you will notice. So there's lots of ways to describe that. You know, I think we will eat less meat. I think we will we will probably travel in different vehicles. Hopefully it will be warmer in our homes because they'll be better insulated and we'll heat them with different technologies. And, you know, I could go on. I think what's interesting, we had this moment when we completed the work on the net zero target, actually, to look at what the world might, what the UK might look like in 2050. It doesn't look that different. There are indeed radical prescriptions for how you could hit net zero and to do so super early and to do all that stuff. But actually, if you want to hit net zero by 2050, it is hard to do it. But actually, the outcome at the end of it looks very similar to the way that society operates today. So I take heart from that, actually, because you know, radical prescriptions, appealing as they may be, as someone who cares about climate change, are very difficult to implement. But actually, stuff that we've been recommending and others is eminently achievable, albeit challenging to do all at once, but crucially, very appealing on a whole host of grounds at the end of it, not just if you care about climate change. So we will have cleaner air in cities, we'll have green spaces that we can enjoy, we'll still have jobs, we'll still travel, we'll still fly, we'll still eat meat, we'll still do those things. And as much as those changes are very, very necessary, it's not some radical shift in society that delivers it, which I just don't think would stick. It's a very appealing world that we're pushing towards, even if you don't care about climate change. And in the end, I'm afraid that is necessary because not everyone in the economy does care about climate change. And you're going to have to do this for a host of reasons beyond just the climate imperative. Well, speaking of radical things, I thought I'd uh, close by asking about our speciality here on challenging climate, which is uh, solar geoengineering. These ideas to cool the planet down by, for example, adding reflective particles into the upper atmosphere. Is this on the UK Committee on Climate Change's radar at all? It is on our radar, and it's something that I think eventually we will have to do a formal piece of work on. Every time we do an assessment, we ask ourselves the question, should we have these, let's call them geoengineering technologies in there? And every time so far, we've concluded, no, let's not put them in there, but let's have them in a basket of things that you might call speculative solutions in the future. One of the reasons for not wanting them in there is because the minute we advise they should be in there, it takes the pressure off some of the, you know, the bog standard stuff that needs to be done. And in the end, the best strategy here is to work hard on reducing actual emissions in most parts of the economy. But the other part of it is that we are not sure, frankly, about the long term impacts of some of these things. So the technology you've raised is one of the more exotic ones. There are less exotic things like, for example, biochar or grinding up rocks just to put them in the ground so that they absorb more of carbon dioxide. I think that's probably where we'll go first is in some of those. As long as we can be confident that we're not doing something that cannot be reversed, they look like a kind of meaningful part of the strategy. They're already in the mix and some of the advice that we've offered. We just haven't said that they have to be there. I think when it comes to the, I'll call them exotic, they may in the future not be exotic, but some of those other things, although they are on our agenda, we're super nervous about advising them, advising that are in the, the UK mix. 
That may change in the future, but I think we will have to have a kind of higher level of confidence about their use before we feel comfortable to them in the pathway. I mean, I guess there's two parts here. There's, you know, putting it in the pathway to achieve our targets and putting it in as an option to consider in terms of would this or would this not make things better or worse for the UK in terms of adaptation? Would it fall more under your adaptation side of things than the mitigation side? That's a good challenge. I mean, I think my mind is still a mitigation question. But yeah, I mean, I think it falls between those two camps, doesn't it? And I want to be very clear that we're not against the work on this this area at all. It's just that I think we have a statutory responsibility. And once we advise something, it does have a status, which you know, means that we need to be super careful about those things that we advise on. We do, it's not just in this area, it's a host of other areas where we do that too. There are all sorts of fantastic technologies in, for example, the energy sector that hold the promise of something that we don't include because we are naturally a conservative organisation. I think part of this, Pete, is because we want to demonstrate you can do this while being conservative with a small c. I think we've done that pretty successfully. And in that world, if you are demonstrating that you don't need to believe lots of exotic things have to happen, then when those things come along, they just make it easier to make more progress in the future. So this was born of an idea that we should be ratcheting up the ambition progressively over time, not starting from a kind of super optimistic vision of, of what must be done. Instead, moving towards something that we can rely upon over time, which allows you to raise the ambition progressively. And I think, you know, that's broadly what we've been here to do. Personally speaking, I find these things to be amongst the most interesting topics in my line of work now. And I think there has to be a point when we have a proper look at them. Typically, what we've done is follow, you know, I remember the Royal Society did a really interesting piece of work on, on greenhouse gas removal technologies a while back which helped us then to turn that into something that looked like that conservative advice I talked about. So I, it's that kind of process, I think, that allows these things to turn into something that becomes more normalised in the discussion. Well, we like to end on an optimistic note, but perhaps I'll end on a question of optimism. How hopeful are you that the UK will reach its zero target? Yeah, I'm very hopeful. I don't know if hopeful is the right word. I think I'm I'm an optimist at heart, but I don't think you need to know to be an optimist to think that we might get to these goals. And that's because of that wider story that we talked about, about the importance of this transition for other reasons. Every year I work on this, get more and more excited about the opportunities that come with this transition. And you know, the momentum is all in one direction now. It's not like there are lots of people saying, well, hang on a minute, we should do, let's do lots of innovation on the use of fossil fuels now. So you know, I think already we're in a position where with existing technologies broadly defined, we can get to net zero. I expect the even more appealing over time. So yes, I do think we'll hit our goals. I think if we're to do so, we'll probably do so for a host of reasons that are increasingly beyond the, the climate motivation. Um, there are all sorts of solid, what we call co-benefits in the work that we do in making this transition, which for most people will be the reason to make these changes. And Increasingly, it'll be weirdos like me that have one eye on the climate impacts. We should, you know, we'll be motoring, to use a terrible phrase, on this stuff because of all the positive impacts that come with it beyond the climate. Well, thanks for joining us. That was a really great conversation and uh, glad you could join us. Thanks, Pete. Well, thanks for listening. Please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere and consider supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash challengingclimate.